rather than doing a second week in Song of Solomon with the fifth and sixth graders, they are actually having a pizza party tonight. So, seemed the best alternative. Go ahead and turn to Song of Solomon. There we go. Nice. I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll have some review. Can we turn this up a little bit? I'm just kidding. I will. We'll do a little review tonight, and then we'll be in a, a lot of text tonight. Last week we did a fair amount of background and considering the context here, and then also considering our context. And so um, tonight we'll, we'll be considering uh, more of the text than we did last week, now that we've got that uh, foundation sort of um, in its proper place. So let's pray, and then we'll get right to it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this time. I'm thankful for Wednesdays, where we can stop in the middle of the week and, and uh, come here together and open the Bible and, and see what you have to say to us. Lord, we are um, humbled by your word, knowing that it gives us wisdom that we would uh, find nowhere else. So uh, we, we submit um, ourselves to you tonight and ask that you would teach us, inform us, <coughs> warn us and encourage us and instruct us as you see fit. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have not felt very good all day and I was talking to someone earlier, I was like, well, at least I don't have to stand in front of a bunch of people and teach on sex tonight. Oh, wait, that's exactly what we're doing. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll push through this together. Um, first, just a little review from last week. <coughs> Who are the main characters of last week's study? What would you say? Solomon and his future bride, Possibly. Yes. A Shulamite shepherdess. And the shepherd. Yeah, some others. Yeah. So there was the, there's the shepherd and the shepherdess. It could possibly be Solomon. Maybe not. There's some different views on that. But the point is there's definitely a Shulamite shepherdess and definitely a shepherd. And they are definitely interested in one another. And they are definitely vocal about it. And that is where we get Song of Solomon. They are very open about what they anticipate, what they want to do, where they want to do that. I mean, it is a very, let's just, you know, be real blunt kind of a book. And so, how does the book begin? Do do y'all remember? They're talking about kissing, that's right. (laughs) Talking about kissing. Yeah, they're talking about kissing. That, that's how the book begins. Um, essentially, it begins with them confessing their love for one another. That's right how we just launch off into, into the text. They're confessing their love for one another. So a few things from last week. I'll move quickly through, through the review, but I want us to make sure we're on the same page. Um, Dever had an observation about the beauty that is in this book is oftentimes sort of skewed because of... Um, our context. And so for our context, we live in a very, very oversexed culture. We're, we're coming to the end of a, um, what, or, or the end, or we're in the century following what many would call the sexual revolution, where people looked at morality and things of that nature and looked at it as a prison and wanted to escape from it. And so that's kind of given way to a number of things that we would have just been perverse um, previously and immoral, and now they're sort of a norm. And so, um, 
He makes the observation that we don't have to do much more than turn on a TV or a computer to find illustrations in which complex moral and spiritual characters made in God's image for knowing and enjoying him forever, where those are portrayed as nothing more than fleshly instruments for your own momentary pleasure and satisfaction. I share that with you because I think it's very sobering, and it's good to kind of bring us down to earth and bring us to a good biblical foundation and how we approach this, that... Um, that we live in a culture where you, you don't have to go far to find these people who are image bearers, who are created in God's image by God for a specific purpose, just being treated as nothing more than, than fleshly um, creatures, for fleshly instruments for our own pleasure and satisfaction. And so that's sort of our context that he, he mentioned. And we, another thing I mentioned last week is that um, Song of Solomon presents a balanced way that informs sexuality and even erotic love and where such things are acceptable in God's sight. And to be clear, we're talking about two people who are getting ready to be married, and then they get married, and then there's consummation. And so that, that's the, that is the setting for where this open expression of anticipation and love and all these things um, is occurring. And I mentioned also that this is not a book about how to fix your marriage. Um, there's a number of men, particularly, who think, if there's something wrong in marriage, we'll fix it with more sex. And so if Song of Solomon is the sex book, then we read that to fix the marriage. And it just doesn't work like that. This is definitely a book about sex. But it doesn't talk about anything like growing old together or children or anything like that. So it's not there to fix your marriage because there's a lot that it doesn't cover in terms of a healthy marriage. Also, while the book is definitely about sex, it's not only about sex. There are other details, some of which we'll look at tonight. Um, that are details about this healthy relationship that we see between the shepherd and the shepherdess that, that are really notable and helpful. Um, we, we mentioned it was traditional among ancient Israelites not to allow young men to read the book until they were 30. That's how, that's how crazy it is. That was traditional. They wouldn't allow young men to read the book until they were 30. And the discomfort of some of its content has led many people to try to explain it in a way that's not sexual at all. Do y'all remember some of the ways that we talked about last week, how people would try to approach it in a way that was just like not sexual at all because of the discomfort that it caused? Do y'all remember some of those ways? Say that again? Yeah, they'd compare it to the church, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's an allegorical approach that 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 details within that where essentially it's like they're saying it's all hidden meaning. It doesn't actually mean what it says, and so the characters aren't actually lovers. This is allegorical, and there's all this hidden meaning, and you, it's Holy Spirit, and it's Church, and it's Jesus, and it's and it's there. To go down that road, there's a number of things in the book that would be very very hard to explain in my opinion. Um, uh, the other approach is typological, which means it's just symbolic, where, where, where characters are, are just types of, of something that's real. So usually that's, this, this whole, they would say this whole book is about Christ and the church. It's, it's not about sex. And there, there's a lot of movement in the book that would be hard to explain otherwise. Um, 
drama, uh, that it's not meant to be seen as actual people, just a drama to give us wisdom and impart wisdom to us in a particular way. And what we landed on last week is this is a collection of human love poems. This is a wisdom book, and I think that God is showing us wisdom through the love poems between two actual people, a shepherd and a shepherdess. Um, by considering it as love poetry, what that allows us to do is the lovers are lovers, and desire is desire, and anticipation is anticipation. Um, I believe that Song of Solomon explains how intimacy in marriage meets the sexual needs, longings, and desires that God created us with. And so a lot of times the Christian response to sexual desire is either, one, just do what the culture does and completely give into it and, you know, run whatever direction you want to run with it, or they'll take sexual desire and they'll try to ignore it and just hope for the best. And I think the, the resounding Christian view of sex is that it's really good. I think Song of Solomon makes it clear that sex is a really great thing when it exists between two married people. And it, with that greatness comes a warning that outside of the marriage, um, you're really actually playing with fire. It's very dangerous in a number of ways, which we're going to actually talk about tonight. Um, and so what we started with last week was considering four different longings. And I'm saying that these are longings that God gives us that are fulfilled within marriage. Longings that God gives us that are fulfilled within marriage, particularly within the sexual part of marriage. And so um, last week, there were three things that we learned from Song of Solomon about physical love and physical beauty. Does anyone remember that? And if you do, do you have the guts to say what you remembered? Yeah, physical beauty is desirable and it is appreciated. You see the lovers saying, hey, when I look at you, I see this and I like what I see. Boom. And man, I mean, within lots of detail, goat's teeth, hair of horses, all kinds of things. It's crazy. What about physical love? What, what did we learn about physical love? Yeah, physical intimacy is not all necessarily sexual. So um, our desire for physical intimacy isn't just a desire to have sex. Um, there's physical intimacy that's built into us like a handshake, side hug. You know, it doesn't have to be just sex. So... Um, Yes. Part of what we get out of that sexual union is tapped into that kind of feeling of lack of separation. Yes, absolutely. A togetherness and a lack of separation. The two main things last week about physical love that we learned were that we have this longing for physical intimacy, and within marriage by God's design, physical love is delightful, and physical love is satisfying. I want you all to know, those are two Specific directions that God has for physical love within your marriage. That it is delightful and that it is satisfying. And so, um, does anyone remember the repeated warning? It was repeated three times that we considered last week. Yeah, not to stir up love too early. Um, not to, that desire need not be awoken before the time is right. And um, so what we took from that is that we should be um, modest, but not ashamed when it comes to sexuality in our marriages. We should be modest, but not ashamed. And we shouldn't rush things before we're married. And so um, 
what I want y'all to know is, as we kind of start this study tonight is, if this isn't your reality, if you're sitting here listening to me say, okay, according to the Song of Solomon, what we see between this shepherd and shepherdess that are totally hot for each other is that physical love is delightful and it's satisfying and you appreciate the beauty of your lover. If, if you're sitting there just saying, man, that's just not my experience, or I've had things happen in my life that were difficult, that affect sex and marriage now, I want y'all to think in these terms. First, change is possible. Sometimes when you read a book like this, it's just good to remember we're Christians and we believe that the Holy Spirit does things and we believe that God changes people. We can be transformed by the renewal of our mind. I mean, you may be sitting there thinking, man, I haven't had satisfaction and delight in sex and marriage in years. And if that's the case, I want us to read Song of Solomon with an anticipation that things can change, that God actually has a design for our marriages. It's God's plan. And just like any, anything else, we, I mean, I know people who have, you know, had, you know, money issues or parenting issues or, or um, self-control issues or any number of different things. And the goal is to read the Bible and see what God's plan is and do everything you can to make, to make that your goal in your life, to, to make whatever necessary changes there are in your life. Um, and it shouldn't be any different with sex. It shouldn't be any different with sex. What we see here about it being delightful and satisfying and two lovers appreciating the beauty of one another, if you're thinking, man, whatever, that's not my experience, I want you to know this is God's design. And if it's God's design and you're created in his image and you, you have the Holy Spirit, that even if you think it's a lost cause, I, I, I encourage you, it's not a lost cause. And for those of you who aren't married, th- consider this as... as um, as, as good foundation, planning, um, and there's also warning in here about um, what we should do when we're married and what we should do when we're not married. So um, like any other book, don't treat this one any different. Approach it saying, I want to conform my life to what this says as best as I possibly can as an act of worship, as an act of obedience. So the first longing we talked about last week was the longing for physical intimacy, which is probably the most obvious longing that is satisfied within marriage in Song of Solomon. The second one is the longing for relational intimacy. Song of Solomon is not just about the hookup. It's about relational intimacy. What did God tell Adam in the garden before Eve ever got there? Or before she ever was placed there. I won't make you think she was somewhere else. She like showed up. So what did he tell Adam? Yes. It's not good for you to be alone. So by God's design, what's not good? To be alone. Okay? And so by God's design, he 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 did not design us to be alone. And that's that's why he brought Eve, um, and she was taken from his side. And there's all kinds of imagery there, not in front of him or behind him, but right there is where she's at home. There's all kinds of good imagery we could go into. But um, as God told Adam in the garden, it wasn't, it wasn't good to be alone. And so um, Dever makes a, a, com- a, a comment on Song of Solomon. He says, behind this very unembarrassed, I mean, I read through large portions of it last week. I mean, the these lovers are talking about where they're going to meet and what they're going to do. And, oh, man, I can't wait to be with you. And, I mean, it is pretty racy and, and, and beautiful, biblically. And um, uh, he says that behind this un, the unembarrassed and even rapturous descriptions of physical attraction, each partner clearly desires a real 
and a full interpersonal relationship. The anticipation that we see in Song of Solomon is not just, I want to be with you so that we can have sex. They both desire this very real interpersonal relationship. It's a desire that God has given us, and it's a desire that he satisfies within the marriage um, uh, covenant, the longing for relational intimacy. There's, uh, look at 8, 1 through 2. There, there are some verses in here that are just weird. And at first, you read through them, and you're like, what does that even mean? Um, and so I want to point one of those out because it actually articulates this desire that they have. Um, so on 8 1, I'm going to read this out loud. Everyone brace yourselves. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Okay, what the heck is that? All they're talking about is when they're going to have sex, how they're going to have sex, all these different things. And now she's saying, I wish you were my brother, my mother's breast, and what, what, this just sounds weird. I mean, at first reading, you're just like, ah, oh, man, is, is, this out of, is this out of line? What's going on here? It's about the kiss, okay? In 8, 1 through 2, it, it's just, the distinction that's being made is a distinction about the kiss. And in that culture, you could not show a public affection for someone who wasn't your family member. And so when she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. What she's saying to him is something that is very significant in regard to relational intimacy. She's, she's saying, I don't want everything that goes on between us to have to be behind closed doors. That's what she's saying. She's saying, it's not just about sex. Like, I wish I could kiss you right on the mouth at the market. I wish I could show you the affection that I have for you and that you could show the affection you have for me out in the open. But in this culture and in this context, it was inappropriate for anybody to have any display of affection for someone who wasn't in the family. So she's saying, in effect, I wish you were like my brother so that no one would look at me the wrong way because of how much love I have for you and how, how deeply I want to be with you. And so what she's expressing in that weird, hard-to-understand <laughs> verse is, is a desire for relational intimacy, showing that what we do behind closed doors isn't all there is. I want to walk with you in every facet of life. I want us to be close everywhere we go, and, and there's this desire just to be together. Um, all throughout Song of Solomon, verbalizing hopes and desires, longings, and even fears are an important dynamic in the relationship. They communicate with each other. This, I mentioned the structure of the book last week. You know, chapters 1 and 2 um, are largely them expressing their love for one another. And in chapter 3, a dream sequence begins. She says, On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. And I believe that that dream continues for about three chapters because you see in chapter 5, she says again, I slept but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the bolt, and I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. 
So there's in, in five, two through five, you see this, she's expressing her desire to be with him through a dream where she said, I was asleep and my heart was still awake because of my anticipation to be with my lover. And she says, in my dream, he came and he knocked on my door and I was so excited to open the door and let him in. But then I went and my, I was so excited that the, the latch and, and I, once I opened it, he was gone. And so you see this verbalization of hope and desire and longing. And it's interesting because if this wasn't a dream sequence, the next part would be very hard to understand. And so it, it, and in 7 it says, The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So there's this picture here where she's, she wasn't actually beaten by the watchmen, but what she's expressing in her dream is fear that she has. Fear of the lack of safety that she has outside of being married and with him. She feels a certain amount of protection when she's with him. And so she's expressing in her dream that you weren't there and someone else hurt me. And, and that's a fear. And so we see this longing that's expressed. We see this fear that's expressed. It goes on to say, um, <coughs> the others say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? The others are saying, why are you speaking so much to us? Why is your lover any different than the other lover? And, and she goes into this long, he is handsome and ruddy and like, a, you know, all this stuff. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But what I want us to see here is that verbalizing hopes and desires, longings and even fears is a very important dynamic in the relationship. They communicate with each other. Now, interestingly, as you might guess, I believe as I read through Song of Solomon, what I gleaned was that the woman seems to say a lot more than the man. Surprise, surprise. Um, but both communicate, men. So... The woman may have said more than the man, but both communicate these longings and these desires and this anticipation and even fear. They both communicate. And this communication is filled with encouragement. And the, communica the communication between the two lovers is filled with anticipation. So my question is, is this how you communicate with your spouse? If you're sitting here and you're married, is this how you communicate with your spouse? Are you looking for ways to encourage are you anticipating sexual fulfillment with each other? The Song of Solomon lovers here, the shepherd and the shepherdess, they anticipate what's going to happen. And it's okay to do that in marriage. It's okay for there to be a playfulness about it and an excitement about it to say, I am anticipating being with you. And I, I just wonder, it, do, you, do you communicate like that? Are you anticipating sexual fulfillment with each other? And maybe even beyond that, or as a part of that, are you anticipating holiness together? There's this picture where they want to be together, but they want it to be in the right way. It's not just this ridiculous, over-the-top, no self-control kind of a thing, but it's a holy thing. So are you anticipating sexual intimacy with each other, and are you anticipating holiness with one another? I want to, I want to consider for a moment just the different example, uh, different, just the differences on how they communicate. So I want to read five 10 through 16. I read everything leading up to it where <coughs> she's having this dream. He comes to the door. She can't get there in time. He's gone. She has this fear that comes in. And then the others who are there, who are like their friends, they're, think about it as their small group, whatever. Um, they say, uh, what, what's, what's, so what's so good about your lover? And she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. <laughs> 
ruddy. That's a funny word. Um, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. I mean, she really... (laughs) It's not just like doves, but particularly doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. I mean, she really... She really loves his eyes. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice is the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. You want to know what's different about my lover? His legs are like columns. And I mean, she's really just, she is doting on her lover for sure. Now, we noted this last week. It's probably good to go ahead and say it again. We're very visual in our communication with each other. And like this group of people and who we are and where we live and everything, we're a very visual people. So when we say, um, uh, if someone was to say, what's so wonderful about your lover? Like a lot of the things that are said here about rods of gold set with jewels and polished ivory and bedecked sapphires, we're like, what in the world? It sounds like a, a bedazzled robot or something weird. <laughs> They're not being visual. She's talking about things that have worth. She's attributing things that have integrity. She's attributing things that are timeless to her lover. And so they, they're using... a sense of communication here that we're not real familiar with just because we're so visual. But she's saying, man, that's just stay in power, just his arms and everything. It's just he's, he's a rock and, and there's integrity there. And so that, that's, the, that's why the language may be a little awkward where you're like, I don't get it. Um, he doesn't sound so great to me. Um, now listen to how he communicates to her. Look at six. I'm going to read verses six through 10. Um, Now, I believe that in in this part, the dream is over. I believe that the dream has ended, and I believe that in this section of Scripture, they're anticipating um, the actual marriage ceremony, and then um, beyond that, the actual consummation and actually having sex. So um, here in 6, 6 through 10, he speaks, and he says, well, I'll just start in 4. You are beautiful as Tizra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Now, to be clear what he's saying here, Your teeth are clean, and none of them are missing, and that's hot. That's what he's saying right there. They're like ewes that have a twin, a twin, and they just came up from the washing. And so he's saying, you have all of your teeth, and they, my love, are clean. He goes on to say in verse 7, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. The standard for a king would have been 30 queens and 40 concubines. So he's, he's talking about your double even royalty because you're so hot. 
And he says, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? They are both clear in their communication with one another and what they think of one another. Now, my question, do y'all notice any difference in how they communicate? Yeah, that's interesting. What, what, why, why would, did y'all hear what she said? That, that she, he is always talking directly to her, yet she's sort of speaking more broadly. Um, why do y'all think that might be significant? Any guesses, any thoughts? Yeah, there's probably something cultural about it. Any other thoughts on that? Women are more inclined to Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> Men aren't all that inclined to share their thoughts with everybody else while the woman is. And so the way you said that was like, yep, that's what we do, right? You know, it's, it's, but it's, it's indicative of, I think, the way we're sort of wired and that we communicate. And I think it's, representing sort of a beauty in the way that the communication comes through. And that for the man, he wants to look directly at the woman and say, this is what I think about you. And for the woman, there's a little more of a doting, sort of a, let me tell you all about my lover. His legs are like whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's sort of something beautiful in this about how direct he wants to be with her and how she's cool bragging on her man a little bit. Does that make sense? It's just kind of, it's an interesting communication dynamic that seems to surface throughout most of the Song of Solomon. Um, on communication and on this relational desire, turn to 1 Peter 3, 7. I, I'm trying not to go outside of Song of Solomon too much because when we're, the Bible actually has a lot to say about sex and relationships and marriage and before marriage and everything else. And I don't want to go into all that because I don't think Song of Solomon does, but in this aspect, I, I want to just take a quick look. Um, I think it's a great time for uh, a reminder in 1 Peter 3, 7. And 3, 7 um, says this, we're talking about communication. And what I'm wanting to, to get across here is we have to communicate in marriage for marriage to be healthy. We can't just make assumptions that the other person knows what we're thinking. We can't just make assumptions that we for sure know what the other person's thinking. We have to communicate. And 1 Peter 3, 7 <coughs> says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's a verse where so many read it, they're like, weaker vessel, and they're offended, and they think that's what's the most shocking thing in that verse. But let me tell you what the most shocking thing in that verse is. What happens if you don't live together in an understanding way? Your prayers are hindered. Do you hear what that's saying? Communication is so important in marriage that if you're not communicating well with your spouse, God says, if that's not in place, I will hinder the communication that you have with me. If this isn't clear, 
this isn't going to be clear. Do you see that warning? It's a very remarkable warning that is missed so often because people will get offended by the weaker vessel comment. It says, since there is with you of the race of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, live together in an understanding way. Communicate clearly with one another so that your prayers may not be hindered. This may be sort of a diagnostic help for some of you. Y'all may be thinking, man, my prayers just seem to not be going anywhere but the ceiling, and I, I don't feel real connected with the Lord in my prayers. Consider, are you living with your spouse in an understanding way? Because it's very, very important. What's at stake is your prayers. So communication is good. One other quote I want to share was from Piper, and I just wanted to share it because he's in his mid-60s, and he seems pretty wise when it comes to this stuff. And he just said, good sex at 10 p.m. must begin at 7 a.m. Now, we're not talking about some marathon here. The guy's in his mid-60s. But um, what he is saying is there must be a relational dynamic that's at play every day where you are communicating with one another, saying things to one another, encouraging, maybe even anticipating things. Maybe there's a playful nature to it like there is in Song of Solomon. Remember, she comes up and says, where is my lover with his flocks? And he's like, just follow the footprints, baby. And he's kind of, you know... Playful about it, and that's okay. But there's there's a communication that needs to happen throughout the course of every day. And if if you're a spouse who just wants to have no communication, and and you just want to go to work, and you want to come home, and you want to just eat dinner, and you just want the kids to be quiet, and then once the kids are down, you just want your sex. That's very unbiblical. That's very unbiblical. There's a relational dynamic at play there that is beautiful, and it is godly, and so. Um, we should let the text inform us however it hits us. The next is the longing for establishing identity. So we have a longing for, um, for physical intimacy, we have a longing for relational intimacy, relational intimacy, and then is the longing for establishing identity. Um, that we had a series that we preached through, and we're actually going to revisit it this summer. Ben and I talked today about revisiting the church series and the, um, the Dibs series this summer, possibly. And um, what we learned in our church series is that part of being a member of the church is knowing and being known. So we're talking about identity and how within marriage, there's this, there's this longing for establishing an identity that in marriage, that, that longing is, is fulfilled to some degree, uh, to a significant degree. But we often grow to understand ourselves in relationship to other people, right? We often grow to understand ourselves in relationship to other people. I mean, if you're a husband, that means you, you know yourself in relationship to your wife. If you're a brother, that means you know, there's a sibling. You know, we know ourselves, we understand ourselves in relationship to other people. And I was thinking, what do people often say when they lose someone? Like, when they, what do they say that they lose with the death of a loved one? A part of me, exactly. When someone dies, when a loved one dies, a lot of times you'll hear people say, man, I feel like I lost a part of myself, especially if it was a spouse. Especially if it was a spouse. A part of themselves. In regard to identity, look, look at Song of Solomon 6.3. We're going to look at 6.3 and 7.10. 6.3 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then 7.10 just repeats it. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. What I want us to see here 
is that in marriage, much of who we are is tied up in our relationship with our spouse. God reckons, when you get married, I mean, if some of y'all can look back at the marriage ceremony and what was said and the vows that were exchanged and this two becoming one and the, this was a ring. and every, I, I think it's funny in weddings how every time the pastor talks about the ring, they talk about how it's a circle and they act like no one has ever heard that before. Like it's the most mind-blowing. You may notice it's eternal in its nature. Like your relationship. I just think it's funny. I, I, I've been to so many marriages where it's like he's the first guy to say that. But anyway... The point is, it's eternal, and God reckons that two people become one person. That's, what it, that's, how, that's the terms that he refers to it in, that two people, and if that was in your wedding ceremony, that, that's a beautiful reality. Please don't, <laughs> please don't let me, don't let me like rain on your parade or your memory or anything like that. It, that's a, it's a great point. So two people become one person, and what I want us to see is that um, by God's design, it's good for you to be closer to your spouse than anyone else on earth. That's okay. By God's design, it's good for you not to be closer to your buddies than your spouse. By God's design, it's good for you not to be closer to your mama than your spouse. Do you see what I'm getting at here? It's better to be closer to your spouse than anyone on earth. You are moving into a relationship where two people become one flesh. And by God's design, it is good. And to do so... You should fight against all things that may hinder such closeness. So a question that I want us to consider is, what are some of the things that can hinder this God-ordained closeness where you are establishing an identity? What, what are some things that hinder that? Sometimes the kids. Independence. Hobbies. So maybe it's you get home and you have four crazy kids that just want to scream until they go to bed. Um, maybe it's an independence where um, at the end of a day, um, a man or a woman kind of wants to retreat rather than um, spend time together. Maybe it's a hobby. What are some other things that can get in the way of this closeness? Television and smartphones, so you set them at the same time. Put your stinking phone down and turn the TV off. Um, I'm really hoping one day we just have this epiphany in the Sutton House where it's like, let's throw the TVs on the front lawn. I would love to do that. Um, I would feel like I'm losing something significant if that happened um, for whatever reason. But that and like the, the phones. I mean, my two-year-old son... Usually I'll see him, we'll say something, he says, can I have your phone? Do you know why he wants my phone? Because he sees me with it all the time. And so they, those can be massive distractions that get in the way of the closeness that, well, with your kids, but, but especially with your, your spouse. Um, too many people lay in bed at night looking at their phones and, um, and not looking at each other when they should be. So I hope that tonight some of you are laying in bed and you realize you're both sitting there with your phones and you think we should be having sex right now as opposed to looking at our phones. That's my hope for tonight. That's what I hope happens. So all the guys are going to be like sitting there with their phones up. Like, I got my phone. Hint, hint. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a warning here too. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> there's a warning here too that if you enter into a physical relationship with someone that you're not married to, um, one commentator noted as saying, you're playing with the deepest things about yourself and the other person. 
because there's this identity that's formed when two become one. And so I want you to know that if that's been a problem for you, if that happened before you got married, there's redemption in Christ. I mean, he makes us clean. He makes us new. He separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And there is beautiful redemption there. But if you're a person who is considering something outside of your marriage or is considering something and you are not married, to do that is to play with the deepest things about yourself and the other person. And a lot of times we don't think about the other person any more than what you want to get from them. And so um, that sense of personal fulfillment, this, this establishing identity can only be found according to God's design in marriage. You can't fabricate that in some other way. And so um, there's satisfaction and completeness here that can be found no, uh, nowhere else. Um, there's a, the sister that's too young for marriage is, is mentioned in here. Look at 8, 8 through 10. The, they, they refer to a little sister who's too young for marriage. And, the, and it says, we have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. If she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. What you see here is looking out for this little sister because it's not time for her to be married yet, and it's not good for her to awaken love before it's appropriate. And in the next verse it says, I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. That word for peace there is shalom. So what this means is, or my question is, by what she is saving for her husband in this verse, what will she be bringing into the marriage? By what she's saving for her husband, what will she be bringing into that marriage? Shalom, peace. If that's not where you're at, you can begin down that road today. There's a beautiful peace that exists there. When it is guarded rightly, and the timing is, is you wait for it as it is appropriate. The last one is the longing for meaning. I believe that everyone desires to know their reason for living. Um, some people may not articulate it. Some people may not say, I deeply desire to know why I was put on planet Earth. I just remember, like, I was really, I became really aware of it when I was studying through Romans. And I got to Romans 12. And it's like, present your body's living sacrifice, holding self to God, your spiritual act of worship. I'm like, oh. My whole created purpose is God's glory. That's significant. Now I know that my entire reason for being on earth is to glorify God. And that was a big deal for me because what that did for me was it told me my reason for living. And it's interesting because there's a longing for meaning and knowing why you are alive that can be found in marriage. And so turn to Ephesians 5, through 23. I do not believe that Song of Solomon is typological or just allegorical, or just, you know, metaphorical, or however you want to say it. But I do believe that because of what is said in Scripture in other places, that when we look at this deep, intimate relationship between the shepherd and the shepherdess, that we can learn about something else. That it can lead us down a path where we understand something else, another relationship. And so Ephesians 5, 22 through 23 says... Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Anytime I'm doing premarital counseling with anyone, I look at the wife to be at that point, and I say, 
Sounds pretty heavy, right? And she usually says, yes, it does. And I say, listen to what God calls your husband to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then I usually look up in the husband's eyes real big, being like, whoa, I got a lot to do there. That's significant. But what, what, what I'm getting at here is a truly balanced, intimate, and honest personal relationship with your spouse is one of the best pictures of our ultimate purpose in all of life, which is a relationship with God. You can learn about your relationship with God through your relationship with your spouse. We can learn about God in our marriages. Um, I want to share a couple of things that Dever shared in his survey um, because I just thought it was incredibly insightful. He said, the beauty and the power of our longing for one another's love points to the relationship that we're called to have with God, a relationship that signifies completion, a relationship that signifies contentedness, our place of true and eternal shalom, our place of true peace. He says, a marriage that is biblically structured and moving in a biblical manner can reflect very much the way you're supposed to be with God, where there is this peace and this contentedness and this joy. Um, in the way that a husband and a wife forsake all others to the exclusivity of one another, so we too forsake all sins, we forsake all other gods, and we look to Christ alone for peace and fulfillment and meaning. And he makes this insightful connection. He says, a positive experience with a spouse who is committed in love can begin to teach even the most damaged among us about God's love for us and the love we can have for him. How? Through our relationships with our spouses, we learn to relate to and deeply trust someone who's different than we are. Y'all hear that? He's saying the way that it's significant in your relationship with God is that with your spouse, you, you are learning to trust someone and relate to someone who's very different than you are. And that can help you to understand your relationship with God he said, and as, um, and as we do that, we learn to trust God, who in his holiness and beauty is more different from us than our spouses are. So when you think of that imagery in Revelation 3.20 about Jesus standing at the door and knocking, think of the same image in Song of Songs of the lover standing at the door and knocking. I don't want to turn Jesus into some pathetic you know, lover who just wants to be with his lady, but there's a significant anticipation there and a humility and a love that is timeless, that is eternal. And he goes on to say the most committed lovers are but a shadow of the commitment of Christ's love toward us. The most committed lovers are but a shadow of the commitment of Christ's love toward us. So I want to close actually with, with an encouragement to the men. Man, this is a huge opportunity. This is a huge opportunity because what we're seeing in the text here is that if you love your wife wholeheartedly and you are eager for people to see how much you love your wife and you are wanting to walk with her in a relational way and 
and you want to honor her and you want to wash her with the water of the word, that is one of the best ways that you can be a witness to the goodness of Jesus is to love your wife. One of the best ways, because the most committed lovers are just a shadow of the commitment of Christ's love toward us. So if people can look at us men and watch us love our brides wholeheartedly and, and unashamedly and in, in unique ways, in creative ways, not as some kind of circus or show or production, but just wholehearted. I don't know if you've ever met a man who clearly loves his wife or someone who they've been together for years and it just seems like, man, they're still tracking with one another. They still love one another. They don't hate being around one another. That is a huge opportunity that we have to put on display how wonderful Christ is towards the church. It's a really great opportunity. So in our marriages, we can, we can learn about our relationship with God. So we have these longings from God, a longing for physical intimacy, a longing for relational intimacy, a longing for establishing identity, and a longing for meaning that in the beautiful context of marriage and the sexual relationship that is a part of it, um, we can find fulfillment in each of those things. And whether or not we're married or not, all of us can look at this text and say, okay, I'm learning something about my God through that, and I'm learning something about myself through that. And there's wisdom. Remember, this is the last of our wisdom books. This is wisdom. The reason this was written was to impart wisdom to you about how to move and understand and think in these matters. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. I'm thankful that, um, that you've given us marriage as a gift and as something that is significant of something much greater. I'm reminded tonight, too, that you tell us when we get to heaven there is no marriage, that it, it is temporary, it is an earthly thing. And when history or when time melts back into eternity, um, what we will have learned and gleaned and understood from that will help us to know you more clearly and help us to enjoy you eternally. Um, I'm really thankful um, for marriage. I'm really thankful for my bride in particular. And uh, as, as I read through all these things and study these things, um, my, my hope is that you would help us to have a healthier view of sex, a healthier view of identity, a healthier view of how we communicate in our relationships, and a healthier understanding of our relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.